Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. How to get wealth and use it for the building of his kingdom. Efren Taylor, the man shown in this clip, made a claim we've heard many times before. God doesn't want you to be in poverty. In fact, God wants you to be wealthy. After all, the Bible does talk about the riches of the kingdom, right? Now, with Efren's help, you'll be rolling in dough, earning money for yourself and the good of the church. Live and well on the internet. Building wealth during these tough economic times can be a real challenge. Security officials say he is hiding out from them and from angry, mostly African-American Christians in at least 40 states. Okay, so maybe not Efren after all. Seems like that one didn't work out. But what about the other pastors, other well-known men of God? When we give our tithes and offerings, God will pour out a blessing that we don't have room to receive. It doesn't say blessings, plural. It says blessing. Hmm. I guess I didn't realize that God's blessing was reliant on honoring God with money, but surely this is just a couple twisted messages, right? Like not everybody feels this way. God's going to release it for you. God's going to give you the money that he owes you. Chapter, no doubt the, the money chapter. The person in this building who doesn't need more money. And if you say, well, I don't need more money, I would say. Hmm. Okay, well, never mind. A hopeful thought, I guess. Sure, every pastor or preacher out there may not feel this way, but the amount of people spewing the prosperity gospel is concerning, to put it mildly. If you genuinely think that the scriptures on wealth and material fortune are more important than the ones about eternal damnation, then, you know, you do you. That's totally your call. Far be it from me to tell anyone what to believe, even if that sounds pretty twisted to my ears. If you want to believe in that, that is definitely your choice. The thing is, though I'm not a religious authority in the slightest, I've gotten pretty familiar with the prosperity gospel in the past few years, all of it, of course, pretty much against my will, and it's made me curious. Why is something like this allowed to continue? Some sermons, messages, and books are transparently asking for money from followers while promising blessings, the love of God, heaven, or other intangible things. Oh, and if you don't get those things, then surely you just didn't give enough or have enough faith. I feel like if I went onto the street tomorrow and sold people eternal peace in jars for $100 a pop, I'd probably get arrested. Like, isn't this basically that whole illegal blessing loom scam that I spoke about like ages ago? That came up in 2016 and news sources were quick to label that as a scam. So why is the prosperity gospel any different? Turns out the answer to that question is actually kind of a simple one because the latter is a church. That's really all there is to it. Churches have an exorbitant amount of money of protection when it comes to any form of accountability. But what does this protection really entail? And how has it allowed it to become an incubator of fraud and allow it to go unchecked for so long? Well, today on Multi-Level Mondays, I want to find out why. So let's get into it. The blessing will bring promotion when you weren't next in line. The blessing will cause people to be good to you that don't even like you. The ministry set up to help the poor. The family put a down payment on this $3 million house in a gated community, blocks from Disney World. 
Within months, federal court documents state Southpaw admitted to illegally diverting more than three quarters of a million dollars from his church, the school, and other. He gave her these papers showing how he spent her entire life savings on a real estate venture, but then he disappeared. In 2013, the Washington Post said they found over a thousand nonprofits with diversions or loss of assets that had not been reported, aka theft. If any of these nonprofits admitted that they were part of investment fraud or accidentally gave millions of dollars to fraudulent businesses, donors would justifiably lose faith in them. If you gave money to something called Youth Service America, then learned that two million was simply misappropriated and just vanished thanks to a former employee, you'd probably be upset and never donate again. This did happen, and it does still happen all the time. Fraud doesn't only take place in corporate offices and in shady back alley deals. Nonprofits have this problem too. However, if you were to look at these annual reports with a fine-toothed comb, you'd find something a little bit strange. Not a single church is on the list. Why? Well, that's because they don't have to be. Churches aren't actually required to do an annual report, so, you know, many of them don't. And this, in my opinion at least, is one of the biggest factors that is contributing to why such an episode like today can even be made. Churches aren't just exempt from federal income tax, but they don't even have to tell anyone where the money goes. This tax status is hugely powerful. And in recent years, the IRS has threatened to remove it from churches and the pastors who make political comments. You know, the whole separation of church and state thing. Well, a lot of pastors simply forget that rule, it seems. But in terms of how the government sees it is, if you wanna tell your congregation how to vote and you know expound upon them your political beliefs, then you don't get to do it tax-free. But the church has a leg up on most nonprofits out there by not even needing to report their assets, which is just crazy, honestly. Pastors and other leaders could be embezzling from the collection plate, like literally just short of someone reporting it with substantial proof, and authorities would have no real way of knowing. And before anyone says, oh Blair, but these pastors and preachers, surely we should be able to trust them. Embezzlement is expected to cost churches $100 billion in just a few years, and about 95% of incidents actually go unreported. It could be about $110 million a day soon. And for comparison's sake, that's about how much Meta platform makes, or about 40% of Google. It's a lot, like it's seriously a lot of money. And again, I really don't wanna sit here and say that all or even most pastors think this way, but we can't dismiss this or pretend it isn't a massive problem either. One of the reasons it actually continues to be so problematic is because of that faith in the church. Todd Johnson, director of Center for the Study of Global Christianity explained, quote, part of why people don't report is a reluctance to see the bad side of a nice pastor, a secretary or a board member of the church. Johnson even cited one quote from a church member who knew of an embezzlement and said, I know he stole my money, but I still think he's a wonderful person. And allow me to read the last line just for some, you know, fun, spicy emphasis. I know he stole my money, but I still think he's a wonderful person. Sure, thieves can change their ways and become better people, but I wouldn't call someone that uses faith in God to manipulate and steal a wonderful person. That sounds like a bad person to me. But that's pretty much how deep this goes. Even those within the church are sometimes so hooked on the prosperity gospel themselves, literally, you know, getting high off their own supply, so to speak, that they can't resist or refuse to see their church as a fraud. 
In some cases, and I'm not really sure what came first here, is it the church or the fraud? They're just so intertwined, I'm almost like, was this a joint effort? Is church always been a fraud? What's the deal here? It's very interesting. So here's obviously the big question, right? Are these pastors and preachers good men that got tempted or were they always liars that purposefully placed themselves in positions of power in front of many vulnerable people with easily openable wallets? Now, I'm obviously a bit jaded. I think you probably know which option I would choose. But for example's sake, let's go ahead and take a look at some of these schemes and why they went unchecked for so long. We're gonna show you how to get wealth and use it for the building of his kingdom. Efren Taylor was introduced to Eddie Long's megachurch years ago, presented as an entrepreneur and a man of God. And there's nothing wrong with either of those things. But when mixed, the combination can be questionable, or in this case, downright toxic. In Efren's case, he had a well-known megachurch pastor vouching for him and the ear of an entire massive congregation. Those that heard this millionaire's message really believed it was coming from God. They believed his words were coming from a place of holiness and goodness. Anita Dorio told CNBC, quote, "'Biblical principles are investing wisely, responsibly, and for the purpose of furthering the kingdom, but also God wants us to be prosperous.'" And I can't say that I actually totally disagree with Anita. It's not as if being prosperous is a bad thing. But even the fact that Efren had a 2009 tour that was literally called a building wealth tour, just, I don't know, it just doesn't sit right with me. If this were held at a professional development seminar or by maybe like a popular YouTube and TikTok like channel that gives financial advice, like that's fine. That would be kind of expected, honestly. But at churches? Like when did worship become about money? Like I thought it was something about like, you know, the, you can't take your physical possessions in death and all this kind of stuff. But this is very much about physical possessions and how you can acquire money to purchase more physical possessions. It just, it seems contradictory to the messages that I thought are supposed to be like, you know, very Christian. It's the way that these two things become conflated with the prosperity gospel that's really concerning and raises so many red flags. Like, just because it's based on the word of God doesn't make it sound kosher to me. Humble bragging about being worth $20 million and holding public and personal investing classes doesn't belong in a church. I'm not saying that financial advice can't support a community, and I'm not trying to impose what I think should or should not be preached. I mean, it literally doesn't belong in churches, like literally. One of the whole reasons why churches are tax exempt and don't have to share annual reports in the first place is because of freedom of religion. Saying this class is about religion is a massive stretch because I mean, you're talking about investing. We're talking about, you know, stonks, okay? Not Jesus, but stonks. Now, Efren may have tossed some Bible verses out there, you know, to kind of give it a little Christian flavoring, but at the end of the day, this was about money. Therefore, I don't think it's unreasonable to say that this shouldn't be held in a church or have any sort of tax-free status whatsoever. But here we are anyway, and if your alarm bells were going absolutely wild at the words building wealth tour, then you were also really right on the money to have that going off in your head. The building wealth tour, as it turns out, was Efren's way of building his own bank account and disguising his Ponzi scheme as a seminar. He convinced members of the churches he went to, like the New Birth Baptist Church and even Joel Osteen's Lakewood Church, to turn over their life savings and invest with him. And like many Ponzi schemes, Efren did pay people at first, sending investors, such as Anita Dorio, monthly checks for tens of thousands of dollars. He even gave them pictures of the businesses, answered phone calls, and kept in communication with everyone. 
But bit by bit, as these schemes unravel, everything fell, and people learned that these businesses they dumped their money into had never even existed in the first place. What's grosser still is church leaders that introduced Efren were unsympathetic to their own members. Quote, Anita Dorio said the response she received from the church was, oh, Anita, how could you? Like I should have known better. Another woman, Lillian Wells, said she turned over everything she had in a real estate venture with Taylor. She was promised a 20% return on her money, and when she went to recoup her money, Taylor disappeared. What a man of God, right? I mean, even when Jesus disappeared after dying for three days, he did come back, but uh, apparently Taylor did not follow in Jesus's footsteps and just, poof, vanished. Now, the money didn't exactly go to any worthwhile causes either, because if you had maybe just a little bit of hope that maybe it went towards something good somewhere down the line, wrong, absolutely wrong. The SEC alleged that Efren used some of the money to pay for studio time for his wife Michelle's music career. Quote, The couple even made a splashy music video starring Michelle Taylor draped in white fur and diamonds. The name of the song? Billionaire. And yes, I looked it up because I just could not resist. That sounded absolutely horrifically gaudy, and uh, it's probably worse than you imagine. Talk to me, talk to the hand. I move like a billionaire. And just as a reminder, this music video, the chorus of which goes, talk to the hand because I'm a billionaire, was made using stolen money from churchgoers that believed in Efren's religious financial message. It's really just a sick joke, honestly. Church leaders like Eddie Long did plead with Taylor to return the money, but of course to no avail because there was never money to invest in the first place. It was just for spending lavishly on himself and his wife, apparently. Ultimately, Taylor was sentenced to federal prison after taking an estimated $16 million from 400 people. And even with all that money, he couldn't make his wife's music bearable. What a shame. Too harsh? Nah, I don't think so. Oh well. Now, what really amazes me about this is how long it actually took for him to get caught and how much money he was actually able to swindle. $16 million from 400 people is no small chunk of change. But one of the reasons it seems like people trusted Efren is purely because he was introduced by their pastors. He was welcomed into the fold and he used the Bible to promote his message and insisted that his investors have faith, knowing that they were already faithful spiritual people. It was the perfect recipe for disaster. Now, if I had to take a guess, which, you know, of course I'm going to right now, I doubt that Eddie Long or Joel Osteen did any real research into Taylor either before introducing them to the congregation. Did they ask to see his businesses, meet any of his former success stories? I mean, yeah, it's possible that Taylor defrauded them too, but I actually think it's more likely that these pastors had some level of blind faith purely because Taylor claimed to be Christian and used his silver tongue to say the right thing. Of course, that is my opinion, and maybe I am giving these people the benefit of the doubt when they don't deserve it, but that's my thought as it currently stands. However, while an outsider coming in wearing sheep's clothing and defrauding a church might sound common, it's actually the fraudsters within the church that you really need to watch out for. You don't see how you could ever get out of debt, ever break the addiction. Ordinary people would complain. Ordinary people would be worried. Here's the key. You're not ordinary. You have the blessing. God's face is smiling on you. He's going before you right now. Let's get back to the question that I posed earlier. What comes first, the pastor or the fraud? Do church leaders build a church with the intention to steal or start stealing when they realize they have the perfect opportunity? In this 2007 case, it's hard not to argue the former. 
It all started when a church bookkeeper became a bit suspicious about Reverend Michael Jude Fay's spending, the Catholic priest of St. John's Church in Darien. He'd buy expensive baubles and waterfront real estate, which on a priest's salary likely would not be possible. The bookkeeper told the assistant pastor who, drum roll please, did absolutely nothing. Instead, Faye pretty much had free reign. Investigator Colucci said nobody questioned him. And although the diocese itself requires yearly financial reports from their parishes, they didn't audit Faye's finances for years. It wasn't until the bookkeeper we mentioned actually hired investigator Colucci to take a closer look at the Bridgeport diocese that they realized, oh shit, we should probably start caring about this. Colucci and subsequently the FBI uncovered hundreds of thousands of dollars being placed from the collection plate directly into Faye's pockets. Ironically enough, Faye had actually been hired to the Sexual Misconduct Review Board of the Diocese of Bridgeport after the 2002 Catholic Church sex abuse scandals. He was supposed to be a good man that took crime seriously. And while he wasn't accused of abusing children, he still abused the faith of the church that he was supposed to protect. And once again, he and the other priests in the area convicted of financial crimes were given the benefit of the doubt because they were nice guys. I guess the church clearly hadn't learned from that mistake years before. Oh, and just as a little cherry on top, Faye had the nerve to tell the judge, quote, do not send me to prison, I am already in prison. Sure, it is possible that he felt guilty and because of his prostate cancer too, he felt as if he was quite literally paying for his mistake. But I don't think his diagnosis nor any amount of prison time would really make amends for the broken trust of the congregation. And unfortunately, there are countless stories like this. What you hear the Spirit of God saying this morning. That is being declared in the earth today what the eternal purpose of God has been through the ages and it's coming clearly now to God's people that he is duplicating himself. In the Citizens, will. When the pandemic hit, Canadian Joshua Edwards asked the U.S. government to help his family's ministry stay afloat. He said they needed $6 million to keep paying more than 450 employees. Instead of funding a ministry court. set up to help the poor, the family put a down payment on this $3 million house in a gated community. Blocks from Disney World. And public Within corruption, months, federal she says she paid the price for years. Vindicated. I could finally exhale. I feel like I've been holding my breath for years, trying to get people to just listen. Fiercely standing firm in defense of the truth. This school was a staple, a legacy school for generations. And the thing is, I don't want to presume that all these pastors go into preaching with the intent of stealing money. But when you make it this easy for them, not even requiring the slightest bit of financial accountability, it's all but guaranteed to happen. I've tried to understand why this takes place aside from you know, the obvious answer, which is greed. And one excuse I've read is that pastors are underpaid. And this might be true, and I'm sure many pastors and preachers aren't making millions from the collection plate. However, those that have embezzled aren't taking grocery money. They're not skimming off the top to provide for their family because of desperation. Instead, these pastors have funded drug habits, bought luxury clothing, mansions, and other luxuries. And it's pretty damn hard to be sympathetic to that. So if those little internet blogs out there could just stop saying, oh my God, these pastors have depression, they're tired and they don't make a lot, that would be great. Get a therapist, join a support group, seek medical and professional help, but stealing from your own congregation is not the answer and no one should have to explain that to a supposed man of God. 
Even so, this happens often and way more often than it should considering the number should really be zero. Some sources, such as LifeWay Research, conducted interviews and found that about one in 10 pastors they spoke with said that some form of embezzling happened at their church, whether before they were pastor or since they arrived. And you know, the nine out of 10 claims no one's doing anything bad as far as they're aware, though I just highly doubt any pastor actually, you know, would admit to fraud. And I just don't think they would out themselves in a research group either. Executive director of LifeWay, Scott McConnell stated, quote, churches run on trust, but they also know people are imperfect and can be tempted. That's why safeguarding a church's finances is an important part of ministry. But what happens when that trust is gone? What are we supposed to do? And how can congregations know where their money is actually going? Well, that's what we're gonna try and take a look at in this final section of today's episode, right after today's sponsor. Oh, and if you don't like the sponsored segments, which is totally cool, make sure to check out the Patreon, patreon.com slash Illuminati. We've got ad-free episodes, bonus episodes, a wonderfully amazing community, and a whole host of other fantastic perks. So make sure to check that out, patreon.com slash Illuminati. From the gas pump to the grocery store, your utility bills, and your favorite streaming services, inflation is everywhere, seriously. But thankfully, there is one company out there that's giving you a much needed break, and that is Mint Mobile. As the first company to sell premium wireless service online only, Mint Mobile lets you order from home and save a ton, with phone plans starting at just 15 bucks a month. And there are multiple plans you can choose from. I actually pay for the most expensive plan, uh, which is 30 bucks a month. So I know, very crazy. And that's unlimited everything. I absolutely love it. I've been using Mint Mobile for almost three years at this point, and I have just absolutely loved it. They've been totally fantastic from the service they provide to the customer support when I need it. They're absolutely just one in a million. And for people looking for extra savings this year, Mint Mobile offers premium wireless, again, starting at just 15 bucks a month. By going online only and eliminating the traditional costs of retail, Mint Mobile gets to pass on significant savings to you. And all plans are gonna come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same number with all your existing contacts, or you can do what I did and change all of it. So to get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, make sure you go to mintmobile.com MLM. That's mintmobile.com MLM. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com MLM. While financial fraud within churches has been especially bad lately, it's by no means a new problem. Utah residents lost more than $200 million in scams around the mid-1980s, many of it due to loyalty among Mormons. Quote, people invest with members of their church without bothering to check into things, said Robert S. McConnell, a Salt Lake City lawyer who is chairman of the task force. The Mormon church is quite concerned. They recognize they have a problem. I don't mean to say all of the schemes are church-oriented, but enough are that it is a concern of the enforcement people. Now I have done an episode about Mormonism and MLMs before, and though MLMs aren't technically considered embezzlement or religious fraud in this way, it is a similar story. Well-known members of the community say they made a lot of money and they convinced their friends and church members to join them on an investment journey. Embezzlement within one particular church is a lot like this too, but on a smaller level. Basically, if you believe God will bless you and the leader of your close-knit local community preaches about the importance of giving money to God's kingdom, it's not such a far-off chance that you'd toss a few dollars their way. Protestants, Catholics, Mormons, Jews, 
a whole host of religions have been affected by these bad faith actors. Plus, when these churches are stolen from, it's not only the congregations that lose trust. In some cases, like when two nuns took half a million dollars from Catholic school tuition just to go party in Vegas, apparently, it's the students that are harmed as well. Emergency PPP money was also taken, which could have gone to small businesses that actually needed them instead of pastors who bought luxury vehicles. Due to all this fraud and the additional fraud of televangelists, there have been attempts to legislate accountability, but of course, to no avail. According to New Republic, this is because elected representatives don't want to take the political risk of supporting anything that could be perceived as anti-religion. And I do get why this is the case. There are still a lot of white Christian men holding political office, but I don't think it's anti-religious to say that all nonprofits, church or not, should file their financial reports with the IRS. The churches themselves obviously argue otherwise because, you know, they've got quite a cushy deal. Quote, in the 1980s, some religious leaders even went so far as to call any congressional consideration of church finances as an insidious attack and the beginning of a new inquisition. If anything, I think you could make the case that these requirements would actually be pro-religion because they'd ensure that religious churchgoers know where their money is spent and ultimately allow for more faith to be had within these communities. Why is that a bad thing? Plus, it's not as if a teeny percentage of money is being lost here. About 16% of the church's total income is getting flushed down the drain. And in spite of this, so many churches go and will continue to go just unchecked. It's difficult to even start investigating a church to begin with, as the IRS has explained on its website. First and foremost, they need reasonable belief that a church is not paying taxes on unrelated business or other taxable activities. This can come from articles, advertisements, television, documents filed with the IRS, reliable reports from the church itself, and other things of that nature. For megachurches, you wouldn't think this would be too difficult to find. Just turn on their television station and you'll be flooded with it, right? But there are a few factors at play here. If you've got millions and millions flooding in like Joel Osteen or any other, you know, insert mega pastor church here guy, hiding that money might be a bit easier. You can lobby with it, make powerful friends with it, and get good at keeping the IRS away. But for these smaller churches, it's a matter of just flying under the radar. After all, IRS resources are limited. They can't exactly sit there and read every single church newsletter when there are literally 380,000 churches in this country. And those are just for the Christian churches, or you know, whatever, Christian, Christian religious buildings, whatever. As we said, this can happen with other religions too. And don't get me wrong, it's important that the IRS has factually proven information before accusing a church or any nonprofit of misusing funds. And I'm also not saying that suspicions alone should be enough to warrant an investigation. But the point here is simply that this process takes a while, and as soon as they take time to catch one pastor, several more seem to pop up overnight. And that's the case with so many other broken systems. It's a never-ending game of whack-a-mole. In addition, there are special rules that limit how the IRS can audit a church. You don't just need proof, but a high-level treasury official has to believe it. Auditing a church is no entry-level thing here, no matter how often it happens. And in my opinion, it's a little bit ridiculous how many hoops you have to jump through. The SEC even warns people how common church fraud is and has warned churchgoers to be careful with who they're dealing with in faith-based communities. They state that criminals will target people of a religion or specific church for things like investment fraud. Fraudsters want to be seen as family and as good and as trustworthy. 
And what better place than a church to do that? The government, all of us, we're all aware that this problem exists. It happens all around us and it's proven to be a very consistent issue actually. So the question is, why are churches given these luxuries of not having to make annual reports? I really don't believe that is a luxury any of them deserve. It's just, it's just a sliver of accountability. We just need just the hint of accountability. And I think we might see a drastic improvement if they would actually have to show where their dollars actually go. But until then, it's faith-based fraud and it's going to keep thriving. But with all of that being said, that's where we're going to end today's episode of Multi-Level Mondays. I hope you learned something new today. And if you did, make sure that you're liking, following, and subscribing to stay up to date with all the latest episodes. As always, thank you so much for joining me all the way to the end. I really do appreciate it. And I'll see you in the next one. Bye. <laughs>